Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Charlotte, creative and technical director here at Evidence for Faith. We are still in Jonah, and we are almost halfway through this series. Still got one more to go before we're officially halfway. Uh, as always, there is a worksheet and PowerPoint that goes with this lesson. You can check it out at evidenceforfaith.org. You can also help support this program and keep it free by becoming a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. And here's Michael in the fourth session of Jonah. Dear Father, we thank you for this time we can come tonight, and we just thank you for each person who is here and listening, and Lord, we just ask again, as we open up your word, that you would just speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds, teach us things, Lord, that you would have us to know as we study this phenomenal book on salvation, and we just ask that you bless our time, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we're, we're going through Jonah here tonight, um, and this is chapter 2. So we've, we finally got into the second chapter. I should have mentioned last time we were together, I, I meant to say this, but I didn't. This, we were talking about chapter 1, verse 17, and the great fish swallowed Jonah, and we had that whole thing taking place. Um, and then we looked at different type of, of creatures that possibly could do it, because some people say, you know, like, what was a baleen whale? And I showed you baleen whales, um, their esophagus is way too small for a person to pass through. A, a, a toothed whale, like a sperm whale, it can. Um, we also talked about some other fish, great white sharks, the megalodon shark. Um, and one thing I should have pointed out, I really meant to do this last time, but I totally forgot, was, you know, it says that Jonah is vomited up on the beach. And this is another reason why some people believe it was a shark, possibly, that did it, because whales do not regurgitate their food. I mean, they just don't throw up. Whales don't they, they, as I did say, I believe last time, they don't chew their food. They swallow it whole, sperm whales and stuff. But they generally do not throw up. They just don't do that. On the other hand, sharks do throw up. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the most famous stories about sharks throwing up, this is a great story, um, back around 1929, 1930, somewhere in there, in Sydney, Australia, they had an aquarium, um, the Sydney Aquarium got uh, donated to them. Some fishermen caught a small great white shark. And they thought, wow, this would be a great thing to put in the aquarium. So they brought it to the aquarium. Great whites do not do well in captivity. But they put this shark inside. It was a small one, not very big, um, maybe only like about seven, eight feet long. Um, and they put this shark inside the aquarium, and people were coming. They, they advertised the man-eater. So everybody was coming with their kids and everything and going up to the tank and seeing this great white swimming in here. And, oh, it was such a, a big tourist thing. And um, the shark was, uh, was acting a little odd. It was caught in a net. But as they put it in the aquarium, it started acting sort of strange, which is not that unusual for great whites. They do not do well in captivity. But what ended up happening is people were standing there on one day watching this shark swimming around, this man-eater as it was advertised. The shark regurgitated and right in front of everyone. Now, the way that they do that is remarkable. They, a shark can literally, many species of shark, if they have an upset stomach, they can have their stomach actually, the whole stomach come out. Like in our case, if we get an upset stomach, we just, we just hurl. Um, sharks, on the other hand, they can actually have their whole stomach come out of their mouth 
Um, I have actually seen films of sharks shaking their stomach back and forth, sort of clean it out, and then they suck it right back down in. And imagine if we did that. <laughs> but it's gross enough. But as this shark in this tank did that, what was amazing and, and sort of scary is everybody standing there watching the quote-unquote man-eater, the shark regurgitated. It blew out its stomach like that, and there was a human hand that came floating down with a rope tied around the wrist. And it ended up being a crime, and they, um, they actually did a study on, uh, took the hand, they called the police, they let the shark go, um, but they took the hand and got fingerprints, and they identified who the person was. He was a gangster um, and a boxer and stuff, and he had a lot of debts and things. But to this day, it's an unsolved crime in Sydney about what happened to him. He just sort of disappeared. But... Yeah, that's a great topic to start with tonight. But, um, sharks, yeah, they, they can do that kind of thing. Well, tonight, we got Jonah being uh, spit out on the beach. That's where we've left him. And so as we get into Jonah's uh, study here tonight, we're going to go through, let's, we're going to read the chapter because it's, like I say, this whole book is so short anyway. But let's read the chapter, and then I'm going to point out a few things to it. Then we're going to go verse by verse through this chapter rather quickly here tonight. But starting at Jonah chapter 2, verses uh, well, all the verses of this chapter. And it reads, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So there is chapter 2. That's the whole content of the chapter and what's been going on. Now, if, if you look at this, and I don't know, some of you probably have study Bibles and stuff that have outlines and things. Um, I sat down and tried to put together a really simple outline of this prayer, because basically this whole chapter is a prayer. And if it is divided basically into four sections, this, this chapter is. Uh, the first two verses is a description of God's deliverance. Of, of just the deliverance part of this um, passage. Then you get to verses 3 all the way through 7. It's a testimony of God's deliverance. And then verses 8 and 9, we actually see Jonah praising God. He's still inside the fish, praising for God's deliverance. So we see these three things um, all having to do with deliverance, uh, description of it, the testimony of it, and then the praise of being delivered. And then finally, he's returned to the land in verse 10. Now, if you sit and you read this, and I always encourage you, when you're ever going to do a Bible study, try to use a couple of different translations as you do a Bible study. Um, one, I always recommend that you get a really, really good word-for-word -word translation. 
That would be like maybe like a New American Standard or an English Standard. Or if you have an interlinear Bible, those are very good. Um, and, and C, um, New King James is not a bad translation also. That's a very good translation. It's pretty much a word-for-word -word translation. And to get a couple of these things, maybe you get three different translations and you can read, or you can go to a thing called BibleHub.com. BibleHub.com, you can just type in Jonah and um, it'll come up, the, um, chapter one will be right there. And then there's a section where you can go parallel and you just press that button and you'll get like about 20 different translations of each verse as you read through it. And so it's really, I, I use that a lot. I just love going through this thing and I use a lot of different translations as I study this. As I was studying this and going through this over and over and over, I noticed very easily um, by studying this that Jonah in this predicament, now sort of, I, we can't even imagine what this would be like, but Jonah does, if you read through this prayer, he starts taking parts of Psalms. There are certain quotes out of Psalms found in this prayer. And that should not really surprise, surprise us too much. It doesn't really surprise me because as I have counseled a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people from both when I used to teach school and, and working at Fort and working in, in the church. In the past, I've come across a lot of people that are often in despair. They're in sore, you know, having difficult times and stuff. And I, when I ask them, you know, are you reading your Bible and stuff? And they used to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm in the Psalms. I, when we get into stress, when we get into despair, don't we often go to Psalms? And Jonah, remember now, he is a prophet of God. So, um, and he's during, just before the end of the upper kingdom. So this is hundreds, a couple hundred years after David. David who wrote many of the Psalms and he wrote some great ones there about being low and depressed because David experienced that firsthand. Can't help but wonder that Jonah doesn't know these and that's why he goes back, that he's in this situation also because Psalms are phenomenal for this. I'm just gonna show you one little sheet that I use here. Um, I use the same slide in a lot of my uh, lessons I do with the True North College uh, program. Um, it's called a handy Psalm reference list with emergency phone numbers that when you get in trouble, you know, we have trouble at home, you dial 911. You have trouble in your life and whatever, you can go to the Psalms. Going to Psalms is like the spiritual 911. And there are so many different Psalms that you can use in emergency. When people fail you, Psalm 27. Um, when you've sinned, Psalm 51. When you're in danger, Psalm 91. When God seems far away, read Psalm 139. Uh, when you're lonely and fearful, Psalm 23. When you're afraid, Psalm 27. Uh, when the world seems bigger than God, Psalm 90. Uh, when you leave home for labor, or if you're traveling someplace, Psalm 121. When your prayers start growing narrow and selfish, read Psalm 67. When you're depressed, Psalm 27, and this list goes on. It's a phenomenal listing that we can have here of emergency phone numbers to go to when we have all sorts of problems in our lives. And I have, during summer staff, I don't know how many times I hand this out every summer, kids will come up and they'll ask me, oh man, can I have a copy of that? And be glad to give you a copy of this anytime here, but there's, this isn't, you know, anything special. You could probably find this very easily online or one just like this, uh, might even list more. Um, but all sorts of different things. I mean, if you're worried, go to Psalm 37. There's so many different things to go to when we have problems. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see uh, and read the Jonah inside of a fish and he's still alive. His mind turns to some of the Psalms. And we do the same exact thing. So that's one fascinating thing I found just 
as a summary here for this chapter, as we're just getting into this chapter, you do find certain sections of Psalms. I'll point out a couple of these uh, very noteworthy ones as we go through this tonight. But just in general, there was, there's quite a bit in there. Another thing that I found interesting about this chapter is that it is written in an inverted parallel. Now, for those of you who have not been through our John study um, that we did uh, a couple of years ago, Inverted parallelism is something that you find the ancient writers often doing. And what it is, it's a way of memorization and it helps people to realize the important parts of Bible lessons. It goes back, not just in the Bible forms, but you find this in the Greeks, you find this in Roman writings, you find it in all different types, Mesopotamian uh, writings and stuff. It's very, very common, what's called inverted parallelism. And what it is, is you'll have a, sometimes it's found in one verse, sometimes it's entire chapters. Uh, some cases it's in um, entire sets of chapters you can find in this thing called an inverted parallel. And what it is, is you will have, let's say we have a block here of like a paragraph. I'll just make just an illustration here. A block of a paragraph, say there's like seven sentences. And in an inverted parallel, the first sentence and the last sentence are dealing basically with the same thing. Sometimes it's the, the, the last sentence is the antithesis of the first one. The second sentence has something with the second to the last sentence. The third sentence has from the third to the last. And it just keeps going. And often what you see is when you get to the middle, like if we had uh, seven sentences, we get to that middle sentence, uh, like at sentence four, that is what is called a chiasm. Chiasm means the focus point, of, of the main theme of this inverted parallel. Now, Jews in particular use these quite often, and it's a way of memorizing sections of Scripture. It's a mnemonic tool to help you uh, to learn things and to memorize passages. Because they didn't have Bibles that we have, like today we could just walk around with our Bibles, many copies of Bibles. They didn't have that. So they would learn things like this in their schools and in synagogues. They were taught in school about inverted parallels, and it would help them to memorize and to learn passages of Scripture. And this is one of these. The book of Matthew, of the four Gospels, Matthew is loaded with inverted parallelism. Uh, years ago when I was doing the youth group here, we did a uh, two and a half, I think it was like two and a half years, it, we went through the book of Matthew verse by verse. And I don't know how many times when a, a lesson would start on a Wednesday night, I'd say, guess what? We got another inverted parallel. Or I remember a couple of nights, guess what, folks? We're going to do three inverted parallels tonight because Matthew is loaded with these things. And you find them also in Old Testament books. There's inverted parallels in Daniel. They're in Job. They're, they're all through the Bible. If you've never heard of this before, that's why I'm going to great length and just saying, well, there's an inverted parallel, is to help you understand it. And I want, now after explaining that, let me show you the one that we have here in chapter two. And it'll help if you're still a little fuzzy what I'm talking about, having this illustration now um, will explain it. And the inverted parallel starts at verse 2 and it goes to verse 6. Now, I've set it up, and usually when you write an inverted parallel, the, the standard way of doing it is you use an A, B, C, D, E, F, G type thing. And you go through and you write A, B, C down this way. And then when you're coming back, you'll notice we have the reverse alphabet. So we go A, B, C, and then it goes B, A. Um, and I put a little prime mark, they call it a prime, is right behind here to symbolize, and I've set it off with indentions to let you see where these things are. So as I read this now, well, I'll just read this to you and try and see if you can see where the, I've got it marked on the next slide, but this one I want to try, uh, help you to try and see this on your own first. 
I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. You heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, that's, there's an inverted parallel embedded in here. And if you've never done this before, that's why I'm going into great detail. Because this is a great way to, to do Bible studies too. Now, let me show you what they are. In the first sentence, in verse 2, You'll see the focus here, and you look for key things. Uh, we see the, the name Lord, of course, but then there's the belly of Sheol. Then you get down to verse 6, we had where we had the belly of Sheol, we have from the pit. Now, if you were to use a dictionary and look up Sheol, which I will do for you in a moment here, um, you will see that sometimes it's referred to as the pit. So we have the same thing, and we see, oh Lord, Lord, you see on both sides there. Um, verse 3 says, for you cast me into the deep. You skip down to verse 5, you say, the waters closed in over, my, uh, over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. So we see the deep, we see the deep. Two key sections inside of each one. Now, since we have this and there's a verse in the middle, that's the chiasm. That's the key focus of this passage. And so what we see here is, it says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Remember I told you at the beginning, the key thing and the key verse of Jonah is at the end. That's verse 10 of this, this chapter. But Jonah is not a book just about fishing and stuff like this. It's a book on salvation. And here we see, I'm driven away from your sight, and yet I shall look again on your holy temple. So it seems like you know, I'm, I'm dying, yet I'm going to be resurrected. And so we're getting into this whole thing here, how we deserve death and stuff, yet God saves us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is what this is talking about, his salvation. And this book is written about salvation, and that's the chiasm. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, I would never be able to find something like that. It takes time and practice to do this. It's not something, at least in, in this one, this wasn't a very easy one. But you can find them very, very easy. In many of Paul's writing, Paul uses chiasms frequently in his letters. And like I say, the book of Matthew is just loaded with them. Um, in some cases, it's, it's like four or five chapters of Matthew are written in a massive one. Or sometimes it's just a paragraph. Matter of fact, there are some passages you can find it's just one sentence, and you will find a whole chiasm in a sentence. So you can find stuff like this, and it's something that, you, that people learn to use as they do a type of Bible study. And I think I've probably told you in the past, I teach Bible study methods at Fort, and this is one of the things that I teach is helping people to see um, these type of things. The, the guy who used to be the pastor of this church many years ago when it first formed, Dan Hayden, some of you know who he is. Um, he's the one who taught me about doing this kind of stuff. Um, and so he, he showed me, uh, taught me a lot on hermeneutics. But um, I now, a lot of times when I'm sitting down and I'm getting ready, I, I do any type of Bible study, I often pick the chapter or whatever or the book I'm doing and I and just start looking, is there a chiasm? Because if I look for it and I see a chiasm, uh, or a, an inverted parallel, if I'm looking for these things, a lot of times I can see what the focal point 
should be on the talk. So that's why these things are so useful. But anyway, that's something else I found just interesting in this chapter. So again, the focus here is about salvation, and that's how this chapter even ends. Now, getting into our story, Jonah is alive, which is fascinating, because normally if you get swallowed by a sea creature, they bite you up in pieces and swallow you. Jonah was swallowed whole, which is very unusual. But Jonah is alive. After being cast into the stormy sea, and he's being attacked by this fish. And as I said last time, it might have been a megalodon, it might have been a sperm whale, it might have been something God's created just for that event. We do not know. But it shouldn't be something to trip you up and make you doubt the Bible, uh, was the whole point of what we're trying to get across last week. But he is alive inside this fish, and he discovers <laughs> the hard way that it is impossible to run away from uh, the omnipotent God. You're just not going to get away from God. You just can't go anywhere. And um, the omnipresent God is all around. That's omnipresent. That's what he, it means. And, and though he, um, he doesn't doubt, and that, you know, he thinks it probably at first, I mean, if you're in the water, think about this. You see this thing coming, it, he had to see it, probably thinking, I'm going to die. What he told the sailors, throw me into the sea. Remember, he was expecting to be dead. But what happened was he, he is not dead. He, even though he expected to be dead, he ends up um, being saved. So that was a, a shock, no doubt, to him that he finds himself inside this fish. I mean, that was a shock and a half, but that he didn't get torn to pieces, um, that, that he is still surviving inside there. And so as we see this now, let's look at the first verse. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Now, I want you to notice something. This is the first time we see Jonah really praying. Now, the, if you'll remember in the last chapter, the crew people, the, the crew, the sailors and stuff, they were praying to their gods. Jonah, remember, is passed out down below, probably seasick. He was not praying. He's running from God. You would think, you know, he's the missionary. He should be the one doing that. But um, that uh, <laughs> he is praying and he realizes now, you know, He's stuck. There's nowhere he's going. God is, uh, is in control. God has him right where he wants him, and he starts to pray. So Jonah realizes that God is keeping him alive inside this fish. He should be dead, but God is obviously keeping him alive inside this fish. Um, and he knows he deserves death. What he has done, he has disobeyed God. He has run away from God. He gets on a boat. He, he keeps his nationality, his, his relationship with God a secret. He doesn't let them. They had to come up and ask him who he was, where he was from, and everything. So he was keeping everything about himself as a secret, not letting anyone in on him. That, that's just not like what missionaries and ministers and stuff should be doing. But he's inside. He's realizing God is not taking his life. You get to the second verse. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. Now there's a lot we can learn about this one here. There's a lot of things that um, in this one verse, we could probably spend a long time just speaking and teaching on this one. But this tells us one important lesson. We can pray anywhere. I have been amazed that sometimes when people have come up to me and they say that, you know, you got to go to church to pray. Why do you got to go to church to pray? You know, you should go to church, yeah, but why do you go to church to pray? You could be praying anywhere. You don't have to wait until Sunday morning to go pray to God. 
You know, you could be praying while you're driving your car and everything, not with your eyes closed, hopefully. Um, but you, you can pray to God anywhere because God is everywhere. And that's one thing Jonah is showing is God is everywhere. And you can talk to him anytime, any place. You don't have to run over here, knock on the door of a church or something to get inside and, and feel like this is where you can only pray. No, anywhere. And I know we all know that, but sometimes we have to be told that quite a few times because it just doesn't sink in with some people the way it should. Now, as I said, this word Sheol. Now, what is Sheol? In some translations, if you go to like King James, the King James actually says hell. I believe that's the word that they use. But other translations will use the word grave. There's a lot of different, you pick up different translations and you read this, you'll see Sheol in some, you see hell in some, you see the grave in some. Those are the three primary words that are used here. And what it means, if you go back to the original Hebrew word here, it's the, the area of the unseen world, uh, the state or the abode of the dead. I put a little diagram here to sort of help you understand this because we, we obviously as Christians, we understand heaven and hell. We, we get that one. But a lot of times we're sort of puzzled as to what is Sheol. Well, you got to go back before the um, New Testament into the Old Testament days. And the way that it was set up that when a person died, um, and there's some examples in the, uh, in the Bible, even Jesus talks about this. When the person dies, their spirit goes into the, the Hades, in some cases it's called, or Sheol. Um, and what it is, there is an area of paradise, and there's an area, uh, Tartarus, is, or tar, Tartarus, that's uh, a word for like the bad place, not where you really want to be. Paradise, that's where you want to be but that there was a great gulf separating the two that you can see from one side to the other, but you can't cross it. If you recall, Jesus is giving a parable at one time about the rich man and a man named Lazarus, not the Lazarus raised from the grave, but the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. And they both died. And it says that the, uh, the beggar uh, went to, because he was a righteous person, he went to paradise. And Jesus says the other went, um, was in the chasm, where it, the, the evil place. And it says, uh, Jesus tells the parable about how he could see Lazarus and, and see Abraham and, and the others. And he, he yells out, the rich man does, to Abraham, dip your finger in the water and just touch my tongue for the torment here is terrible. That's what this is being described as. So places like, you know, Lazarus, um, the thief on the cross, stuff like this, that would be in this area here. Now, when the resurrection happens, that's different because Jesus then brings the people to um, that were in this into a different area. We have the resurrection period, but now I'm getting way ahead of me here because now we're getting into judgment. Eventually, you go into heaven and hell. We're not going to get there. My point today is I'm just trying to make to you what is Sheol. Sheol was the holding place of the dead. And there was a good place there. There was a bad place there. Um, some play, sometimes it's called Hades, too, the same thing. But that's where it was in the Old Testament days. So that's how this was set up. It is, it's synonyms for Sheol. It's called the pit. Like I say, that helps you in figuring out the um, inverted parallel because it has Sheol on one verse, and then down at the bottom talks about the pit. Pit is another name for it. That's uh, also the, the word for death and destruction. It's a holding place is what it was. And that's what he's talking about because this is Old Testament period of time. But the key thing here that I'm trying to get across, the key thing about this, it's, it says in verse 2 at the end, and you heard my voice. God hears us. 
God is everywhere. You don't have to be in a special place. If Jonah can be heard by God inside the belly of a fish, deep under the sea, God can hear you in your bedroom, in your bathroom, in your kitchen, in your car, where you work, God can hear you. And he listens to us. That's the key thing to remember from this. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the floods surrounded me, your waves and your billows passed over me. So what's this talking about here? Very easily what we're seeing is God is keeping Jonah alive inside this fish. Jonah is conscious. Now when he wrote this, when he's writing this, is obviously he's not writing inside the fish. This is like he would have a little bit of, have to go, fish would have to swallow a flashlight fish to him to have some light. Um, and he had to have writing instruments. No, this is something, and that's, to be honest, some people disagree on this. They say, no, he did write it in there. I doubt that, seriously. Um, he, he is, afterwards, after he is spit up and everything, he writes about what his experience was. That's what's happening here. But the thing is, while he's inside there, he's realizing he should be dead. Anybody else gets swallowed, gets killed, yet he is living. God is keeping him alive. And because of that, he starts praising God because he realized how easy it was for God to take his life, but God is not. He's keeping him alive. Go to the next verse, verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Look at the, what he's saying here. He knows he's going to get out of this. No matter how bad the trouble is, he's already, you, you get this? He's already praising God for getting out of it, yet he's still inside the fish. Hmm, that's very important. Praising God while inside the fish. Praising God when the trial in your life is going on. Praising Him saying, thank you, Lord. It's not over yet, but I trust you to get me out of this. And that's what he's doing. This is not after, he's not praying after the release. He was praying this inside the fish. There's a great lesson that we need to learn from there. A lot of times we'll praise God, God, you're really great and stuff like this as we're going through anguish, but we don't praise him for deliverance until after we get the paycheck, after we get out of it, then, whew, boy, God, thank you for, for doing that. That was great what you did and everything. Jonah shows us we should be praising God at all the time, expecting even when it, things are looking pretty bad. And I'll tell you, being stuck inside the belly of the fish, that's pretty bad. I don't know how your life is, but I doubt it has been to that extreme of being stuck inside the belly of a fish for a while. Yet he's praising God. Hmm. Verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. Now, <laughs> I love this verse. This is another one of these science lessons I'm going to get to go into here. So, I get a little passionate about these, I know, but this is really cool. Do you notice what it says at the end of this? At the root of the mountains? Do you know how amazing that is? You see, until, now if you study marine biology or the history of science and, and um, like oceanography and stuff like this, you, you learn something fascinating about what people used to think. Until just a little over 170 years ago, science at every major university all over the world taught that the ocean floor was totally flat, that there was no mountains, there was just nothing. It was called the abyssal plain. 
and it was totally flat from one continent to the other, that if you went to the bottom, it would just be totally flat. That's what they taught. Every university for centuries has taught this until just about 170 years ago. And the way it was found that it, it's not like that, because we all know today that there are mountain ranges and stuff under the seas. But the way that we found out was because of a captain in the United States Navy by the name of um, Matthew Murray. And Matthew Murray, he discovered a lot of things. I, th I don't know if I've mentioned before about him finding out the ocean currents, if I've ever mentioned that. Um, he was the one who read his Bible. He came across a uh, passage in Psalm that talked about the paths of the sea. He went and got permission from the Navy to go out and look, and he actually categorized and, and made maps and stuff, the first maps ever of the worldwide currents. And it was him. And he did this because he was reading his Bible. Well, also, when he was reading his Bible, this guy was a phenomenal Christian and very, very famous. He's called the Pathfinder of the Seas. He's the father of modern oceanography. Um, this guy was a phenomenal person. But he also was a phenomenal Christian. He studied his Bible. We know that he was a guy who spent a lot of time every day. He would get into his Bible. He would study his Bible. He would memorize passages. He would study them, not just read them like a novel. He studied things carefully. He'd look for adjectives and nouns and, and pronouns, and he would sit and look at things like that and, and study it very deeply. And as he was reading Jonah one day, he came across that part of that verse where it says the roots of the mountains. Now, Jonah is inside the fish. Now, there's no portholes on the side of a fish. So how he knew this had to be an inspiration of God. But the thing is, he actually wrote about going down to the root of the mountains, that there's mountains under the water. Now, that was against science. Matthew Morius, he's reading this. He realizes, wait a minute. Everybody teaches in every university that the ocean floor is flat, yet it says here in Jonah that there's mountains underwater. So he went to the Admiralty Board and he asked for permission to go out and search with a Navy ship to go out and take soundings to see if there were indeed mountains. And guess what? He found mountains. He found a lot of mountains. He didn't find them all. He just went out, found mountains. The Mid-Atlantic Range would be discovered by someone else who comes after now, Matthew Murray, finds this. But Matthew Murray found that there are many, many mountains. Matter of fact, people often ask, uh, what's the tallest mountain on the planet? Does anyone know the correct answer? I will tell you, because you, you obviously don't want to respond because this is too easy. It's one of these things like on Jeopardy. This has got to be too simple. It's not Mount Everest. Actually, it's the Hawaiian Islands. The Hawaiian Islands, for where they go down to the very bottom till they come up, because they're very mountainous too, though I've never been there. They are very mountainous. Probably some of you have been there before. Highly mountainous area, and some of those mountains are very high. So if you look at the top of that to the root, they're the tallest mountains on the, on the entire planet. Fascinating. But Matthew Murray, by reading Jonah, went against what everybody else was saying. He went against what science was telling and teaching in universities. And he says, I don't care what they say. If the Bible has this, it's got to be true. God doesn't make mistakes. That's an important lesson right there for us, too. So I, I love studying Matthew Murray. It's a great person to study his life and, and things. And uh, he, he was a phenomenal guy in the, in the mid-1800s. Um, but getting back to our lesson now, get to verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. 
O Lord my God. So again, we have a reference here to the pit being down below. This is like the, uh, like the Sheol. Also, it says the bars. There was some thinking um, back in uh, Old Testament period of time. Actually, the Greeks even picked this up and went with it, that there were bars. You were um, the entryways into Sheol or Hades. There were bars that were there. And um, so Sheol is mentioned also and thought about with being bars. And that's another reason he uses this and he's talking about the pit he's describing like being in death, like Sheol, that's the place where you, the dead go. And he was thinking he's like that. He is dead in all circumstances inside the belly of the fish. Yet God, of course, is going to have him rise again, if you will. So he is declaring himself dead. I mean, he is describing these, these places of Sheol, the, the, the abode of the dead. No one really goes to, the, to like Sheol and then comes back walking around. To go there, it's like you're dead. So Jonah is actually realizing, I'm, I should be dead. I deserve to be dead. I'm entombed in this fish. Yet I know God's got a purpose and he's going to take me out of this. And he starts praising God for bringing him back to this life. We get to verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, this is where we start seeing some interesting things dealing with, with Jonah, because um, as we talked about last week, being swallowed into the gastric system of a fish or something, there are going to be some things that are going to be changing you. And his life was fainting away. He was under a lot of duress, not just being inside of a tight bag of a stomach or something inside this fish, but as we talked about last week, gastric juices, hydrochloric acid, enzymes and stuff, breaking down the proteins and stuff of his body. And so he starts talking about this and, and thinking about it. I mean, the burning of his skin by, the, by these things, as I said last week, probably would have scarred him permanently for life. Um, very likely destroyed the, the melanocytes on his, in, in his dermis that would give him coloration on the skin. Those would be destroyed. He was probably sort of whitish in color when he came out. But the suffocating closeness of being inside there, the smell and everything, being engulfed, oh my gosh, what it had to be like. Yeah, the fainting away, uh, fainting away of his, of his body. His body is being digested by this thing for a period of time. Um, so he comes out, he's going to come out a changed person in more than one way. With this anguish present all around him, he realizes, though, that God is sparing him. God is sparing him. Deserves death, God spares him. God was present with him, and he realizes God is present with him. That's what's so cool. And we get to this next verse. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What are we talking about here? Actually, we're getting into, these are uh, some quotes right out of Psalms. If you, as I said, he's thinking of certain Psalms, two Psalms that are found inside this passage, among many short little phrases of many of them. Uh, he seems to be thinking of Psalm 59, uh, verses 16 and 17, and also Psalm 144, verse 2. is where some of this now that he's talking about in here is coming from. Here's Psalm 59, 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud for your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Uh, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And so we're seeing this, um, him, him talking about this steadfast love. Can't help but think that this is a psalm that's coming to his mind. Just like when we're in duress and we look to the psalms, we, we find phrases in psalms that, that hit right what we're feeling and stuff. In Psalm 144, verse 2, he is my steadfast love, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer. He knows he's going to be coming out because God could have had him be chewed up by now. He knows that God has a purpose and God is going to release him. And so he's talking about now, he's praising God for his deliverance, which is so cool. He's still inside the fish and he's praising God for the deliverance that's going to come. So he's already praising. I mean, stuck in the belly of fish. He's already saying, yes, God, your steadfast love is with me forever. You will be my deliverer. And wow, that's what happens. Then we get to verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, as we get into this, it says here, thanksgiving, a sacrifice. Is he capable of doing a sacrifice inside this fish? No. Mm -mm. Uh, what is he vowing? We aren't told. But it says here, what I have vowed. He's making some promise to God. I bet I would too. You get me out of this, God, I will do this for you. You get me out of this, God, I'll go to Nineveh. You know, I'll, I'll do that. You know, I'll go to Babylon too on the side if you want. You know, he's probably making some type of vow. We don't know what it is. But he does, it sounds like he's made a vow here and in verse 9 as he's talking. And so he's, I want you to notice now. Remember, this whole book is on salvation. He's not saved by what he's done. Right? <laughs> he's disobeyed God, just like we all do. He's saved by his trust and his commitment. The trust and commitment. He's trusting God, and he's believing in God being committed to him, and he is committed to God. He's going to now come out, and he's going to be successful. He's going to rise out of this thing. And so he's already praising God for this type of thing. And as he says, salvation is from the Lord. Jonah is not taking out his Swiss army knife and cutting his way out of the fish. He's not being saved that way. He's not being saved by anything he can do. He is saved in the same way in that we are saved by God's work. God is being merciful beyond mercy here, totally forgiving him on this and letting him come out alive. It's the same thing that we're saved by. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Jonah is, is distributing or exhibiting here uh, a faith in God, faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Jonah is getting a gift from God. He's getting his salvation. He's getting life again. Uh, not a result of works, <laughs> just the opposite. What he has done should send him to Sheol. But it's not that. So he can't boast about anything good that he's done. Definitely not. For we are the workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. Yeah, there's some works that God is going to save us for. Jonah realizes, God, you've saved me. You're going to deliver me. I vow I will do whatever you want. You're not saving me because of any sacrifice I've done. You're saving me because of the grace you're offering me, and I will take that, and I will work for you. That's... What he's saying here is basically in Ephesians chapter 2. Also, Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from works. You can't work your salvation out. You only come to God through faith. You believe, this word belief that we often see, like in John 3, 16, that belief is the Greek word pistuo, which is trust and commitment, not head knowledge, as I've talked about many times before. That's what this type of faith is that he has. And, of course, in Romans 5, 1 and 2, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, not by anything we're doing. Jonah can't do anything in that fish, really physical things, any type of good deeds to get out. No. By faith, we get justified told by God and declared by God to be just and no longer sinful. That's the way God sees us today. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah, we obtain it by faith. Jonah obtained it by faith. He was running from God. God hasn't swallowed. Boy, he really sees how God is everywhere. God is forgiving him and God is granting him justification to get out and go out and work more. So we get to the last verse then, Jonah 10, um, verse 10 here of chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What he looked like was probably different, as we've talked about. He's probably got a totally different appearance now. And we could just say, well, that's the end of the lesson. Now he's on land, and voila, he finally got out of the stinky fish. But I want you to think about something. There's something important here we don't want to miss. When Jonah, when he goes down to Joppa to get on the boat, he's running away from God, correct? He's going to? Tarshish, Spain. He's moving. It's not a vacation trip. He didn't book on a sandals to go, you know, sandals to go over there for a couple of days and he's going to come back. He's running away from God permanently. Now, what would you be doing if you were going to move from Gath Hefer, which is up by Nazareth, and you're moving to Spain? What would you be going through in your own life? What would you do? If you were to move, let's put it on modern terms. If you were to move today from this Rhinelander area and say you're going to move to um, Belfast, Ireland. I don't know why it just came up. <laughs> but if you were to move, a permanent move now, what would you be doing here? Selling your stuff. Selling your stuff. Because you need money to make that trip. You don't want to keep your car or that kind of stuff. You're getting rid of things. Can't you see Jonah doing the exact same thing? We often have this idea he gets the message from God and whoop, he just starts taking off with what he's got in his pockets. I don't think so. He's running away permanently. He's selling everything he's got. He's trying to get as much money because he's got to start a whole new life. He's going to have to buy a house over there. He's going to have to uh, have some type of occupation. I mean, what, what's he going to do over there as a prophet of God? I don't know. He probably didn't know either. But he was, had some plan. I'm getting away from God. I'm getting away from this land. I'm going to do that. So I'm taking everything that I can carry, what I can put on my body, and put all the money that I've got and everything into this. I'm wearing my clothes and what I've got in my baggage and stuff. Where does the baggage go? On the boat. What happened to his baggage on the boat? It was thrown overboard when the ship was starting to sink. He lost all of his personal belongings. Now what he has, if, he was, if it was to stop, the storm stop right there, what does Jonah now have? Just what he's got on. And in his pockets, that's it. Now, they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by the fish. 
He's inside the fish for a while. Do you think you would want to keep wearing those clothes? And what even condition it would be in, I don't know. But no doubt he has lost all of the, the money he had in his pockets. He's got nothing. Do you realize that he has lost everything that he had? So we often don't think that. We just read the story, oh, he came out, and then he started walking to Nineveh. How was he going to get to Nineveh? Also, didn't he just make a vow about going to the, the temple? Where's the temple? Jerusalem. How's he going to get there? Where did the fish let him out? We're not told. We're not even told what, if he's on some island, if he's on Crete, if he's on a Greek island, if he's on site. We have no idea where he's at. Scholars have puzzled over this for many years, trying to figure out a place. Folks, it's really simple. The Bible doesn't tell us. We have no idea where he was. But Nineveh is 600 miles inland. And he's got nothing. And he comes out praising God. How many of us, I mean, Jonah, we often don't think of being a really good example of a person. But at this point in his life, we see something. He has lost everything, and he's praising God. Could we be like that? Maybe God will call some of us to be like that. I have a former student of mine. She got married um, two years out of high school. Um, married a, a guy. He wasn't even a Christian. Um, he is now a Christian. And her name is Laura. They had two kids within just a couple of years then. Like one year they had one kid, next year they had another kid. And they got a job. They were living, I think it was in West Virginia. And then one day uh, he went off to work. He's a, he was in the Marines. He was a mechanic. And he was working um, at some, he was out of the Marines at this point, but he was working at some automotive place. So he goes uh, to work one morning. Laura is there with the two children. And as she's getting things ready in the morning and stuff like this, all of a sudden she smells smoke. And she runs upstairs, and the whole upstairs is ablaze. She grabs the two kids that she has and runs out of the house. She was still in her jammies. And the kids were, one of the kids was still, I believe, in bed. Grabbed the kids. The other kids, her two children were both in jammies. They ran outside. The house burnt down. There was no chance to make a 911 call. They lost everything. Even her cell phone, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Lost everything. And her husband didn't even get word of this for many hours till it finally got back. And when they came home, of course, they had, he had a car. Actually, it was a motorcycle, if I'm not mistaken, that he went to work on a motorcycle. So they had one motorcycle and just what they had in their pockets. And at the same time this happened, as they were just starting to recover from this, another thing that happened to them, their credit cards got hacked. So they lost, uh, they were running into all sorts of things, they, their accounts and everything. Uh, what was in the bank, whoever it was who did this, they wiped out their accounts. They had nothing. You talk about a family that had absolutely nothing except their two kids. That was it. And I'm sure it could have got worse. They still had their health. It could have been worse. But I will remember, I still remember this. Laura calling me and telling me this and praising God through the whole thing. Wow. I don't know if I could do that. I want to say I could, but I've never been put in that position. That's, that's something else. 
That's the way we should be. We're seeing that with Jonah. But it's something to think about. We often don't think about Jonah losing everything, but he did. He lost it all. And even part of his health was not going to be good after that. As we said last time, gastric juice on the eyes, he probably wasn't seeing too well after that either. But we'll pick up what happens to him in the next lesson as we close this one out. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter time we've had here tonight in studying Jonah. And Lord, I am thankful for what you have blessed me with. I don't deserve any of this. Um, I also thank you, Lord, for my salvation. I don't, I don't deserve that. None of us in this room do. But Lord, you have been so gracious to us, and we thank you. And help us, Lord, as we settle down tonight, and maybe before going to bed or whatever, we just take a moment and think about how Jonah lost everything, and Lord, how rich we really are. And it could all be gone in a moment. But Lord, we thank you, and we trust you in all circumstances. And when bad times come into our lives, which they will, because we still are in this fallen world, Lord, I just ask that we all just remember to praise you as Jonah was in this bad situation. He came out praising you before you did anything. Before you restored him in any way, he's praising you. And that's the way we should be. I ask for your protection. I ask that you bless our treat here tonight, Lord, and watch over all of us. Keep us safe and away from evil and harm, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.